blessed this morning. It is great to be here with you all. Uh, my name is Chris Davidson. If I haven't met yet, apologies. Uh, it was quite quick this morning, but I am one of your mission partners, Sunny Scotland, and I just bring warm well wishes from our church family to yours. Uh, Renovation is a dear partner of ours. We love you guys. We pray for you uh, and pray that you would flourish in your mission here in Syracuse. Uh, and we're just so thankful. For your support. When you pray for us, it means a lot. When you come over and visit with mission teams, it's awesome because it means a big guy like me doesn't have to run around and kick footballs with energetic 12-year-olds. So you've got fitter people here. So we thank you for your time, for your fellowship. But we gather here today not to hear the words of a man, right? We gather to hear from God and his word and how the Holy Spirit speaks through the Word and applies it to our hearts. So with that in mind, if you would flip open to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, or get up on your phone, or it should maybe up on the boards behind you, I'm going to read this chapter together. Uh, my wife's actually going to read for us, so um, it would be good to have it open in front of you, just in case you lose her in the Scottish accent. It's there in front. You can, when she says amen, that's the end of the reading, so you'll know that part. But Ecclesiastes... Chapter 8, and we're going to read it all together. Hi, everybody. I can just add my thanks to Chris, not to Chris, to you all um, <laughs> as well. It really does mean so much to see the faces of Renovation Church. Um, people in Mercant's Free Church have all heard of Renovation Church, and we're so, so thankful for you all. So thank you. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, reading the whole chapter. <clears throat> Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his heart. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also was vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, 
that they are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom, and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Amen. Great. So we're... As I understand it, as a church, you're journeying through Ecclesiastes, and we should all be a wee bit sufficiently confused by Ecclesiastes 8, because it is a tough passage in the Bible uh, to unpack together. So think of our sermon today, like we flew over from Scotland, and I think we were at 30,000 feet. That's kind of the way we're going to pass through this text, pick out the key themes that apply to us today, because we could get bogged down in it. It's a, it's a great passage of Scripture. But let me pray for us before we look at this together and pray that the Lord speaks to us through his word. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that, Lord, that wisdom can be found in you, that, Lord, you can give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to apply your word. So we pray, Holy Spirit, work in and through us now to still us, to put off the cares of the world in this moment and become reflective on you and your word. Lord, help us prepare our hearts to receive you in your word and to live out changed lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, Ecclesiastes is a wonderful book in the Bible, but it's not easy because the writer of Ecclesiastes, as we read it, wants to make us question the world, the lives we lead, the rhythms and kind of patterns of our world. He wants us to ask, what is wise? What is burdening us? What is weighing us down? under the sun, right? So he's full of questions, and that's the primary tool the author wants to give us as we do a deep dive into wisdom. He wants to give each one of us here an inquisitive mind to ask questions. So the writer of Ecclesiastes is full of questions as he looks at life under the sun, and he wants us to be full of questions too as we live life under the sun, and this is so important for us as we live in the West, in a secular West, because especially in Scotland, we are the most secular state in Europe right now. Questions get shut down by dogma. An inquisitive mind gets restrained by ideologies, right? Whereas Christian faith, the Christian faith of Ecclesiastes brings a spirit of freedom for us to ask real deep questions about who we are and the world we live in. Isn't that wonderful? Like a cult, cults and cult leaders hate questions because it seems to attack at the root. Whereas what does God say? Come, 
Let's reason together. Bring your mind, bring your questions. Though your sin be as red as scarlet, it can be white as snow. So questions are a great thing. And the writer of Ecclesiastes, this teacher, wants to impart an inquisitive mind to each one of us. So with that kind of framework of questions, I have a question for you. I'm going to read some song lyrics right now. And my question to you is, who sang it, right? I'm not going to sing it to you because (laughs) you probably chased me out of the building. Uh, There's not many good Scottish singers, let's put it that way. Um, So I'm going to read these words. Who sung it? It starts, I've paid my dues time after time. I've done my sentence, but I've committed no crime. Bad mistakes, I've made a few. I've had a share of sand kicked in my face, but I've made it through. And we mean to go on and on and on. We are the champions, my friend. We'll keep fighting till the end. We are the champion. No time for losers, because we are the champions of the world. Does anyone know who sung that? Queen, yeah, I got it. (laughs) 10 points if we're doing points. It is Queen. The legendary rock band of Queen battled this out, that we are champions that there's no time for losers, that we are champions of the world. This song gets played as teams run out onto the pitch in stands, as people take to the batting field, right, to get them psyched up. Why? Because it's a good song to buff up your ego, right? I'm a champion. I can take it on. I can overcome it all. I've got no time for losers. I can power through my enemies, right? That's kind of what they're getting you psyched up to. And see, when we're young or younger, we can believe that, right? We can think we are the champions. But most of us in the room today, if we've been a Christian more than five minutes, knows the battles, feels the temptations, feels weak. You may sit here today and in the last week had the stuffing kicked out of you and you feel not a champion, but needy, right? You may have even experienced things this week under the sun, and you're like, that is so unfair. That was unjust. You may even be sitting here today thinking, life is meaningless. It's a vanity. It's what I've experienced, right? And this is where Ecclesiastes comes to play. Because that is more often than not, the experience we have as Christians, that life is hard. It's a toil under the sun. We don't feel like champions often. And this is a hard book for people to understand. It has led some scholars to even say the author of this book is a faithless fool, which is so wrong because what they're not applying there is the paradigm of suffering in the Christian faith, that God can even use that, right? Such a wrong way to view this book because this book, what it does wonderfully is it pulls faith into the equation. Faith makes sense of a broken world. Faith makes sense of our fallen nature. Faith is where wisdom shines. Ecclesiastes is a book drenched in faith and the freedom of a questioning spirit in the pursuit of God's wisdom. That's the best way to summarize this book, that Ecclesiastes is a book drenched in faith and the freedom of questions in the pursuit of God's wisdom. 
So with that kind of framework in our minds right now of how Ecclesiastes is framed, let's look at our text today specifically, try zero in on that. And I have three kind of headings we're going to frame our talk with together today to help us latch on to this text. Firstly, God's wisdom is transformative and fit for life. Second point, God's wisdom makes us fear the right things. Thirdly, man's wisdom is limited, but faith is unlimited, right? We can't get enough of it. There's not enough faith that we can muster that would be like, oh, that's overwhelming. It's an endless supply. So if you have your Bible open, let's look at this text. I'm just going to reread verses 1 to 9 for us to keep it in the headlights right now. It says this, Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of things? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's commands because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And he who may say to it, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. Although man's troubles lie heavy on him, for he does not know know what it to be for who can tell him how it will be no man has power to retrain his spirit or power to over over the day of death there is no discharge from war nor for the wickedness delivered those who are given to it all this i observed while applying my heart to all that was done under the sun when men had power over man to his heart The writer opens here with, like we said, like a classic question. Who is like the wise? And this question, again, is meant to engage our minds. Who's wise around you? What makes them wise? See how questions produce questions. These wise people here seem to be marked with another wisdom word, the way to interpret things. How do we interpret things, meaning they see life, they see life under the sun, but not only that, those who have wisdom and can interpret things go to a deeper level. They, they understand it. This form of wisdom enables them to navigate life. Like Mike's been driving around in his truck around here. I'm terrified because I do not know how to interpret your signs, right? Uh, the only one I think I can really understand is the big red stop sign, but that's about it, right? I'm lost. I don't have the wisdom to navigate your roads. So pray for me next week because I hired a car in it here. So, <laughs> you know. But having wisdom, having the ability to interpret and apply it helps us navigate life. This form of wisdom is crucial in the way we live, and it has a a working through of us, right, from the inside out. What does the text say? Look at verse 4. Verse 1, sorry. Wisdom makes us shine. The hardness of who we are is softened by God's grace and his wisdom. Our face is mellow right? Not hard, not brutal. So we can infer from this, if you sit here today, you're smart, you're successful, 
You can understand uh, C.H. Hodge and all his depths and his theology, but you're hard, harsh, and cold. You lack wisdom. Right? It's not about what we know in that sense. It's about the deeper realities of wisdom that is humbling, winsome, like the smell of your lovely, wise old granny that just makes you feel safe. That is wisdom. That's a wisdom that makes us soft and changes us. This is the sort of wisdom we want to bask in and be in. And here the writer of Ecclesiastes does something wonderful. He relates the wisdom here to the covenant blessing of God's people way back in number six, which says this, May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with, look with favor on you and give you peace, right? The heart of a wise life is based in a relationship with he who shines with holiness, wisdom, and love and gives us what? Peace, his peace. And we can only shine with the wisdom of heaven by experiencing the God of heaven by being in relationship with him. The two are inseparable, guys. We can't have the wisdom of heaven without the God of heaven in our hearts. So wise being is actually relationship with God, being in his presence, letting his face shine upon you, learning from him. His wisdom is transformative. It changes us and how we live. We become what? Salt and light to others. That's the sort of wisdom we talk about here in Ecclesiastes. That's what Ecclesiastes is trying to point you to, to question you to, to lead you through your questions to him who sits on high. Has anyone read Roald Dahl? Maybe this is a very British author. He wrote James and Giant Peach. Have you heard of that book? He has like a, maybe a less known book called uh, The Twits. Uh, which is like nearly a bad word in Britain, but it's really interesting. He writes this about the main character. She says, if a person has ugly thoughts, it begins to show on their face. And when that person has ugly thoughts every day, every week, every year, the face gets uglier and uglier until you can hardly bear to look at it. A person who has good thoughts cannot ever be ugly. You can have a wonky nose, and a crooked mouth, a double chin, sticky out teeth. I feel like he's describing me here. Um, but if you have good thoughts, it will shine out of your face like sunbeams. And you will always look lovely. Dal's on to something here, right? What he's doing is he's placing transformation in what we think. Ugly thoughts lead to ugliness. Whereas the writer of Ecclesiastes places transformation in faith. That relationship with God is what transforms our hearts, our minds, softens our features, and helps us live a wise life under the sun. This transformational wisdom helps us then navigate life. Because let's be clear here, the Bible does not give us an answer to how we deal with the rise of AI or whatever the next problem will be. 
But what the Bible does in its counsel and the word of God, it helps us interpret the world and live out a wise life that glorifies him. Look at verse 2. It says this, I say, keep the king's commands because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Here, the whole point the writer's getting at is wisdom enables us to live under the king's rule and empowers us to live well in a fallen world, right? The writer points to us that the best place to be is in the king's presence, under his rule. And we are not to rush and leave that place because, see, the moment we do, we are in danger of promoting the wrong thing, right? Just in our our own selves. We are in danger of reverting back to our own wisdom and doing anything that pleases us and everything that pleases us, rather than resting in the wise hands of the king who oversees all. It's a dangerous place. Like, you know, if we gave a toddler um, the ability to drive a speedboat, we kind of all know what probably would happen because the kid would be like, I just want to make it to land full power. (laughs) Under their own reasoning, they think it's the right thing to do but then your speedboat's wrecked at the end of the day. Human wisdom compared to God's wisdom is like that of a toddler. And if we exercise it without coming before the king, it can lead to disaster. But what is the corrective here? What's the thing that corrects the child of God? We could put it that way. Well, the only corrective for this drift is what? Verse 4, the word of the king is supreme. We come under his word, right? That's where we go. Your Bible that you hold in your hand, if it is in your phone, if it's a page Bible made of paper, that is a mine of wisdom that you can mine daily and it will help you live your life in this world wisely, well, a whole life that would glorify God. The older I get, the less that I want to deploy my own wisdom. Especially in the scheme of Scotland, when people's lives are so messy, I I just get caught off guard. I'm like, I don't know what I can actually even say to you right now. Because it's so hard, so broken, so messy, right? And my wisdom can maybe add shame or pain to that situation. So where do we go? Go to the Psalms. Like, why are you downcast, O my soul? Isn't that great words of wisdom? But what he says then, the psalmist says, look to God, because he is our hope. That's the sort of wisdom we want to sit under. We want to sit under the word of the king, because it is supreme, and it's helpful for living lives in today's society. Oh, I wish for more men and women who have this kind of wisdom in our church plant. I long to be a man with that sort of wisdom that transforms me, that shapes me, that points me to the word of the king, and that's the way I live my life. Our word, our Bible is fit for life. Our faith enables us 
to live wisely under the sun. So wisdom then is transformative, right? It changes us, helps us navigate life, but it also here helps us fear the right things. Look at verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried, and they used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity or meaningless or like a vapor because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well for those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with those wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Here we have wicked people buried, right? And we are told something fascinating about this group, that they used to go to the holy place, the temple, place, the only place in the ancient world where you would go to sing and worship God, right? And here the people are full of praise for these wicked people. They had done things in the city that people had kind of known them. They were philanthropists, charity, charity people. But these people who were religious lacked the transformational relationship with God that makes people wise, right? So they look like a believer, but inwardly, they're not. They're still wicked. They're nice. They've done good things that brought them fame. But inwardly, the word wicked applies, right? Meaning unsanctified, not saved. I wondered in my study as I looked at this passage, what drove these people? Was it the fear of man? You know, they grew up in a church and it was just kind of what was expected of them. They didn't want to let anyone down. So they just acted like a Christian. But actually, their hearts were never changed. I wondered if they were consumed by money and business and thought, you know, church is a good place to network with people. So I'll just go along and kind of play my part. Whatever the reason, we need to be reminded of what Ecclesiastes calls a fool. And that is someone who recognizes God but does not trust in him. The fool is someone who is religious but does not want the relationship with God, like these wicked people. And let me be blunt, that is a scary and dangerous place to be if you sit in church week in, week out. Because what you lack is fear, righteous fear. Like this is the one who made every atom in existence. Right, if a lion or a tiger came up behind me, I think we would all be like, running out that door, we realize it's dangerous, right? It could get us. Here's God, holy, powerful. Gravity bends it as well. The psalmist says he could pick up all the seas of the world that'd be like a drop in his hand. How powerful. But this wicked people dance in church, join in church, sing songs, but they're like, don't really need to worry about that. And Ecclesiastes says, that is foolish. So what's the corrective here for religious people, 
for those who are fearing man, for those who are struggling under the sun. Well, it's a righteous fear of who God is. Because that will cast out all the others, right? Think about it. Like, how many of us still have hang-ups from what happened in kindergarten, right? Hopefully not many of us. I can't even remember that age anymore. That's how old I'm getting. In a hundred years' time, that boss who you're breaking your back off because you're scared of what they, a bad review or what they think of you, what will that really mean? Do we live our lives wondering what God thinks of us? How we live our life under him? That's what Ecclesiastes is wanting us to think about. Not what's in our bank accounts. Not on what our neighbors are driving. It's not competition. We're not competing. We're living our lives under the light of one. And it's God. That's the corrective here. Having that sense of who he is. His majesty. His awesomeness. That God is constant. That he is internal. And at the end of the day, he is the one that each one of us are going to have to give an account with. He's going to sit us down one day and speak to us and ask about our lives, how we lived before him under the sun. And Ecclesiastes says it's pure foolishness to not even consider that and put, put it off. He calls it unbelief, right? Luke records for us Jesus' words later when he says this, I say to you, my friends, so this is intimate friendship language here, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that can do nothing more. That's the worst they can do to you and it's nothing. He says this, but I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. This is reverent fear. It's not a slavish one. It's not like the fear of man that cripples us and pins us down. God is actually inviting you to come to him and question him and he wants to show you his glory and in the fear of who he is, we run to him because we know he is the only safe space. He is the boss. He is the strong one. He is the powerful one. Mike said a moment ago that he is the rock, our fortress. He is a safe space and the only safe space for your soul. And Ecclesiastes is trying to get us to see that in his question. He's trying to use now fear to lift our eyes off our current circumstance and to God and recognize that we need him as our savior. To recognize that self-righteousness, our own self-righteousness, the only place that buys us a ticket to is hell. Right? But here, God is saying, He is the one stronger, more powerful to be feared, to come to Him. It's not works based righteousness, it's faith that we need, right? Because if we try and earn our way to heaven, what does the writer of Ecclesiastes say? It's meaningless, it's vanity, it's nothing. It's like a breath in a mirror. It's gone, right? We need to know this. We need to have this mindset to question God, to come before him, to realize his character, who he is, that he is great, powerful, wise, loving, gracious, awesome in the truest sense. 
and then realize that Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us. So that now, as we come before his presence, we see him, but that fear is replaced with what? Love, hope, that we have a right because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to come to who? Our Father in heaven. One of the greatest words in the New Testament, God who is awesome to be feared, now approaches us and calls us as his children, come, he's safe, he's a good father. But like dads, like all dads, he has authority. There's a wee bit of, he can ground me, right? He can put me to my room without supper. Although, I don't know if you do supper or dinner. We'll say dinner here. You know, we have that about our dads. Here, Ecclesiastes is saying, this is the right fear that helps you flourish as a person. And see the fear of man, the fear of having more, the fear of competing, the fear of contrasting. They will all just pin you down and make you feel hopeless, worthless, and that life is meaningless. And actually, God's fear frees us from that. Isn't that a beautiful thing that Ecclesiastes is trying to point us to? A proper fear in life. But the last point that this leads us to is that our wisdom is limited, guys. But faith is unlimited. Look at verse 14. This is a vanity that takes place on earth. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of wicked. So good people suffer bad things. And there are wicked people who it happens to accord to the deeds of the righteous. There's wicked people that get everything they want and it seems good. I said this is also vanity. And I command joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to set the business that is done on the earth, how neither day nor night do one eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the works of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much, much men may toil in seeking, he will not find it. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it. Guys, even in our wisdom, this kind of teaches us that we can fall into sin and wickedness and hurt, right? Things can seem unjust. Even if you're the most saint-like person in the room today, your journey through life will contain hard parts. And the writer of Ecclesiastes has seen this again and again. He has seen good people suffer wickedness. And he's seen wicked people get off uh, scotch-free. Like, there seems to be no punishment for them. Right? Humanly speaking... It seems wrong. It seems like, how can God allow this to happen, right? But friends, there's danger here, and this is the danger. We're applying human wisdom to the tapestry of our lives that we cannot see. Peter fell into this with Jesus. Jesus taught that he would have to 
suffer and die to rise again. Right? And Peter filtered that message through his own human wisdom that is limited and came up with the wrong conclusion. And you know what he said to Jesus? It says that in Matthew, he took Jesus aside and rebuked him. Man, what a, what a lad to do that to Jesus, right? And he says, you cannot do this. You cannot suffer and die. That cannot be allowed. I'll stop it. And what does Jesus say to Peter? That's pretty shocking words, right? He says, get behind me, Satan. And what happened here is Peter looked at his situation and he applied his own human reason and says, God cannot allow that. That's suffering. How can that be done? And inadvertently, he was trying to stop in the road of redemption. He was trying to stop Christ redeeming his people. Even today, some people look at the cross and say, that is ugly and brutal. There's no hope there. That is awful. They're applying their human wisdom. But see, if we apply faith, what do we do? We look at the cross and wonder, God, my Savior, hung there for me. That's not human wisdom. That God, who could call down legions of angels, he could have emptied heaven. And guys, in the Old Testament, we have one angel that wiped out an army. Imagine the hosts of heaven coming to Jesus' aid. No one would survive. He wasn't powerless on the cross, although it perceives that way through human wisdom. But what he's doing is taking our sin, our death, our shame, our brokenness, and he dies. So it's destroyed. So as far as the east is from the west, your sin is removed from you. So those who trust in that can walk now in a wise righteous life because Christ has brought us into relationship with his Father. Do you see how faith makes wisdom shine? Poor Peter got it the wrong way round to God. A bit of a hard talking to after that. But how often do we apply our own wisdom into situations and we miss trusting in God? We miss resting in him. So far too often, Christians feel so quick to comment and give their opinion. See, again, guys, the older I'm getting, the less I actually want to speak because I realize that I see it through a glass dimly. So what do we do when someone comes to us who's hurting because life seems wrong? What do we do when our brothers and sisters of faith come to us depressed and they feel like it'd be better if I'm not here? Where do we point them to? Not our counsel, right? We take them to the word of God. We remind them that they are saved, that they are restored, that they can rest in him. That one day, as the Bible says, we will enter his presence. And I love this. It's one of my favorite pictures in the Bible. It says he will wipe away every tear. What a weird way to get into heaven, right? But why is that? Because we'll come questions, we'll come with hearts. Paul talked about the thorn in the flesh. He can well one day be able to speak to Jesus and say, why was it there? Job, when he suffered, well, what did he cry out? He says, Lord, kill me now. Elijah, when he suffered, he prayed for death. This is not unusual in the Christian faith. We face trials that cut us and wound us, but God has a plan. 
a massive tapestry that we cannot see. So see your suffering, your pain. It isn't invalid. Because that's what the world would teach you. Pain and suffering is wrong. Right? But where do we go? We look to the cross, right? Pain and suffering, but what? Hope. A destiny beyond the cross of eternal life. So that's a wise life, focusing on God, seeing him. And see if we can live under the sovereignty of God, that we can rejoice in the hard and uh, uh, good times. Verse 15 makes sense. He says, I command joy, for man has nothing better under the sun than to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil the days of his life. And God has given him under the sun. Guys, we're about to celebrate communion together. Another sacrament. What are we doing there? We're eating and we're drinking. Enjoy that we have a saviour. And we go out into the world with that good news. Right? The good news that no matter how hearted, how needy, how broken you are, there is hope. In Christ. What does Ecclesiastes do to get us there? He asks questions. I love that. See your unbelieving friends. It's good to get them to ask questions. It's good to kind of maneuver them there. They have a voice. They have the mind. They want to inquire of the world. Invite that. Ask questions of them. Why do you think we're here? Like, you know, they're good questions. What do you do when you feel sad or hurting? Where do you turn to for hope? These are gateway questions to lead people to Jesus Christ. We can have joy because of Jesus. So guys, wisdom here in Ecclesiastes is fundamentally about having a relationship with God through the wondrous work of Jesus Christ. That transforms us and helps us live a wise life under the sun. Wisdom is letting God work in us and through us Casting out our deepest, darkest fears so that we can hold on to him as he holds on to us. Wisdom is knowing that our wisdom is limited, but see our faith. It cannot be contained. It cannot be removed. And we cannot get enough of it. Like, I often think what heaven's going to be like, not because I want to get there quickly, <laughs> but uh, I often wonder what it's going to be like. Eternity. What are we going to be doing for eternity? We're going to be growing in our wisdom and faith and knowledge of him, our Lord, God, and Savior. He's an endless source of it. So for all eternity, that's all we're going to be doing. Isn't that wonderful? So now here we know faith is unlimited. It's bountiful. So like the song we sang at the start, which says, um, we are the champions by queen. That's a load of nonsense. There is only one champion, and that is Christ, who took on sin and death. And the lyric says, no time for losers. The wonderful good news of the cross is Jesus sought and saved losers like you and me. And you know, we are grafted into his victory. So save your suffering today in life under the sun. Life is not meaningless to you. It is not hopeless if you're in him who conquered sin and death. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word and the word here today of Ecclesiastes that invites us
to question, to question ourselves, to question the world, and Lord, most profoundly, to come and question you. That, Lord, you actually invite us to come to you and ask, Lord, this hurts, and I don't know why. And, Lord, you hear us, and you respond by pointing to your Son, Jesus Christ, who walks with us in our suffering. Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit, who is described as our comforter, but our counselor, Lord. We need you, Lord, to counsel us to live a life of faith and wisdom here now in Syracuse. Lord, in this week ahead, Some of us may face challenges that make us feel worthless, undervalued, and Lord, that life is meaningless. And Lord, we just pray that we would take those situations and reframe them by the cross. Lord, that we would realize today that wicked people do succeed now, but one day, Lord, the Supreme King will come and ask an account of everyone. And Lord, that you will hold every injustice to account. That people will have to respond to you. And Father, we thank you that the only difference between us on that day and an unbeliever is that we called out for mercy. And you saved us. That we, Lord, experienced your love. So Father, we pray for anyone sitting in the room right now who does not know you, Lord, that may be going through uh, the religious kind of beat of life, the Lord, you would break that religious beat down now and replace it with a relationship with your son. That, Lord, they would come to know you, that they would come to see how hollow a religious practice is is without the heart of Christ. So we pray, Father, for our friends and family who may think they're saved but have no concept of you. The Lord would say they pray, but they don't know the one to whom they pray to. The Lord, you would save them and they would see Jesus. The Lord, they would see that you're the only one who has power over life and death. So we pray for our loved ones. Lord, we pray for each other as we live life here. We pray that your wisdom would transform us, that we would be wise, loving, gracious, and kind. Lord, we pray for this church and the leadership of it. Lord, give them great wisdom, especially when trials and testing come, especially when wicked people pour out on them, that, Lord, they wouldn't respond in harshness or bitterness, but with your love and your son. So, Father, we know as we pray these things, we cannot do one thing of it without you. So we ask, Jesus, that you would revive us, work in and through us for your glory, where you have placed us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.